Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone from Washington, D.C. Poppy is off this week. Pamela Brown has survived three days with me. We're going to try four. and make it a fourth. This is number four. This is number yeah. four. We're just starting. Yeah, so we're just starting, time. but I feel really optimistic. You know what I'm excited about? What? When Wolf Blitzer has a big interview. Yes. And we get to have some of it. There's like a different energy. A hundred percent. I feel that. it. It's great. I mean, so, you've been so lucky with all this, the news we've had. Thank you. Yeah, it's all I'm you. bringing it. Let's get things started. It is another big news day. Here's the five things to know for this Thursday, July 13th, 2003. President Biden closing out his trip abroad in Finland this morning. This, as Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin tells CNN's Wolf Blitzer, he has, quote, no doubt Ukraine will join NATO when the war with Russia ends. And new overnight, there is no deal. 160,000 SAG-AFTRA members are set to strike after they failed to reach an agreement with Hollywood Studios by this morning's deadline. And tornadoes striking the Chicago area overnight. The severe weather halting air travel there as millions of Americans face another round of dangerous heat from coast to coast. A CNN exclusive Michigan Secretary of State saying federal prosecutors with the special counsel interviewed her for several hours. It is all part of the investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And this is what Pamela was focused on last yes. night. LeBron James putting those retirement rumors to bed. Come on, guys, you knew he was staying around. The Lakers star says he'll be playing for his 21st NBA season. CNN This Morning starts right now. And right now, President Biden is capping off his high-stakes trip to Europe and Finland, the NATO alliance's newest member. You're going to be looking live at Helsinki, where he'll be meeting with the Finnish president before a summit with Nordic leaders. Now, this is a major show of force right in Russia's backyard. Helsinki, only 120 miles or so from the Russian border. This also comes after Biden and NATO allies rallied behind Ukraine at a critical summit in Lithuania. And now Sweden is on the cusp of also joining the alliance in a huge strategic blow to Vladimir Putin. CNN White House correspondent Arlette Sines is live for us in Helsinki. Arlette, this is the final stop on a consequential trip. What are we expecting here? Well, Phil, President Biden is once again trying to reinforce his message to Vladimir Putin that the NATO alliance is strengthened in the face of Putin's war against Ukraine. The president making his final stop here in Helsinki, Finland, which is the latest member of the NATO alliance, having just joined back in April. Finland, of course, also shares an 800-mile land border with Russia, raising many concerns about Putin's moves in this area of the country. But as the president is about to sit down with the president of Finland, He is also looking ahead to a summit with Nordic leaders from five countries, including Sweden. Of course, the president got a big win this week heading into that summit after Turkey dropped its objections to now allow Sweden into the alliance. Now, Turkish President Erdogan has said that they still need to hold a vote in the Turkish parliament. That may have to wait until the fall. But Sweden could soon now be entering the alliance and expanding the strength that the president is trying to show against Russian President. 
President Vladimir Putin. Now, this all comes as the president has really built a trip around trying to relay that message. He went into that NATO summit trying to rally more support about Ukraine. Yes, there was some tension between the president and Zelensky and other allies at the start. But at the end of it, the president did offer some long-term security commitments with G7 allies to Ukraine. And it also also speaks to the president's broader worldview that he believes that Western democracies do have a hand in influencing and helping other countries. He's been stressing this message about democracy and freedom, saying that that fight for freedom is a lifelong calling. And in this trip has been trying to message to Russian President Vladimir Putin that the U.S. and its allies aren't going anywhere when it comes to Ukraine. All right. Arlette signs live for us in Helsinki. Thank you. And ahead, you don't want to miss this, CNN's Wolf Blitzer talked exclusively with Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in Lithuania just moments ago. We're going to have some of that here, what the Defense Secretary had to say about Ukraine receiving fighter jets and cluster bombs this week's NATO summit. He also weighed in about China. All of that coming up in just a minute. You won't want to miss it. And new overnight, no deal reached between the SAG-AFTRA Actors Union and Hollywood Studios over a new contract, setting the stage for a strike among SAG's 160,000 members. Union leader said its national board will meet today to formally authorize a strike. CNN's Natasha Chen live in Los Angeles for us. So, Natasha, where do things stand right now? Yeah, Pamela, this was already an extension of their original deadline, and we fully expect the strike to happen. But as you said, it has to be made official with their national board vote. And we will find out about that result at noon in Los Angeles, 3 p.m. Eastern. Now, the chief negotiators for SAG-AFTRA told us this. The studios and streamers have implemented massive unilateral changes in our industry's business model, while at the same time insisting on keeping our contracts frozen in amber. The studios and streamers have underestimated our members' resolve as they are about to fully discover. Uh, some of these actors have already gone to the picket lines to join the actors, who, uh, the, the writers rather, who have been on strike for more than 70 days. Here's one of the actors talking to us this week. I think like people assume that, you know, writers in Hollywood or actors in Hollywood are all sort of wealthy and successful and, you know, why should we need even more money than we're getting now? But what I don't think people realize is that there's a whole middle class of writers and actors that is disappearing because they're making it more and more difficult to just make a living. And one of those reasons that makes it difficult is the issue of residuals in the world of streaming services. And the actors are also very concerned about the AI technology that could uh, take their digital likeness. Now, the studios in a statement said that they offered a historic pay raise and protective AI agreements there, in part saying in this statement, we are deeply disappointed that SAG-AFTRA has decided to walk away from negotiations. This is the union's choice, not ours, rather than Continuing to negotiate, SAG-AFTRA has put us on a course that will deepen the financial hardship for thousands who depend on the industry for their livelihoods. And Pamela, I've spoken to a number of people who don't have production roles, who are janitors or work in a deli. All of these people in the greater economy have been deeply affected already. That's really important context right there. Natasha Chen, thank you. Thanks. Well, also this morning, soaring temperatures across the United States are threatening to break all-time records in several major U.S. cities. It's just after 3 a.m. in Phoenix, and it's already 96 degrees. That city has faced 12 straight days of brutally hot temperatures above, get this, 110 degrees. 
CNN's Lucy Kavanoff is live in Scottsdale, Arizona this morning. And Lucy, I had to do a double take when I saw this. Forecasters are warning temperatures are set to soar even higher through the end of this week. Yeah, uh, we are actually expecting temperatures to hit uh, an excruciating 118 degrees in Phoenix by Saturday. Obviously, it's going to be a lot higher the the higher you go on mountain areas and sort of the more uh, baking desert portions that are not as, as heavily populated. But Phoenix is definitely going to be feeling it. Uh, and we are looking at potentially breaking the 1974 18-day record of 110 consecutive, uh, pardon me, of 18 days of 110. 10 uh, 80 consecutive days of 110 degree weather. You can see that the sun is already impacting me from yesterday, even though it's not out right now. In Phoenix, Arizona, they may be used to the desert heat, but not like this. Every day in July has seen temperatures of 110 degrees and above, sending wildlife and residents scrambling for a splash of relief. In extreme heat like this, one of the few places where it's safe to be outdoors is the pool. It's too hot inside. They get red, they run around, they just get too overheated. Burns off a lot of energy and it's a little bit cooler out here. Excessive heat warnings are in effect across most of the state. People don't understand that the heat is, is very dangerous, especially if you haven't been hydrated and if you're not used to it. Um, every year, unfortunately, we have rescues. We have people who from out of town who just don't understand the heat and they think that a short hike is easy and that you can do it but if it's 115 in the air it's likely 130 140 on the trail and it's not just arizona tens of millions of americans face dangerous triple digit temperatures this weekend in california residents are already trying to cool off along part of the old coast highway dozens of rv owners have parked for some relief it's a beautiful spot down here it is about 70 degrees and it's about 100 inland where we live. And while brush fires keep fire departments busy, Let's go! new recruits train for the fire season. There's a lot of potential this time of year. The relative humidities that drop down and the fuel moistures that are low pose a challenge. We're ready for those challenges as they come up. Uh, we just want to make sure that we stay ahead of these fires before they get large. And as they put out brush fires on one side of Palos Verdes Peninsula, on the other side, a landslide has destroyed more than a dozen homes. An investigation into the cause of the land movement is still underway. From South Florida to California, more than 55 million Americans are bracing for temperatures at or above 110 degrees this weekend, making 2023 a year for the record books for all the wrong reasons. And in weather like this, it's so much better just to stay indoors, stay hydrated, especially for folks in parts of the country that are feeling the heat but aren't used to it. Uh, the heat sickness can really sneak up on you faster than you think. Guys? Lucy, I'm going to be honest. You look very calm, cool, and collected. The heat is not getting to you. <laughs> Lucy Cavanaugh for us. yesterday, and I actually woke up with, like, insane soreness at in my calves. But, yes, um, I'm going to pretend I'm very calm and cool and collected. You are absolutely it, that. Right? Lucy Cavanaugh for us in Scottsdale. Thanks so much. Well, FBI Director Christopher Wray, he's defending the Bureau from a barrage of Republican attacks on Capitol Hill. What he said about accusations of bias against conservatives. And a CNN exclusive Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Vinson describes her hours long interviews with federal prosecutors. Her take on the Justice Department's investigation into 2020 election interference. And just moments ago, we saw President Biden with Finnish President Solonunisto. They are having a bilateral meeting before President Biden sits down with the Nordic leaders. The final day of a very consequential trip. We'll have more on that coming up.
more CNN This Morning to come after the break. A live look at Capitol Hill this morning where Republican lawmakers grilled FBI Director Christopher Wray yesterday. Wray testified in front of the House Judiciary Committee and the heated five-hour hearing is part of GOP efforts to paint the FBI as unfairly targeting conservatives. CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray reports from Washington. FBI Director Christopher Wray. Thank you. Good morning, Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Nadler. Members of the committee pulling no punches in critiquing former President Donald Trump's sloppy retention of classified documents. I don't want to be commenting on the pending case, but I will say that there are specific rules about where to store classified information and that those need to be stored in a SCIF, a secure compartmentalized information facility. And uh, in my experience, ballrooms, bathrooms and bedrooms are not SCIFs. And insisting in the wake of Hunter Biden's plea deal on tax charges that the bureau is not protecting the Biden family. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI does not have no interest in protecting anyone politically. He also disavowed some of the behavior outlined in special counsel John Durham's probe, which documented missteps by the FBI in its investigation into the 2016 Trump campaign's ties with Russia. I consider the conduct that was described in the Durham report as totally unacceptable and unrepresentative of what I see from the FBI every day and must never be allowed to happen again. Ray, however, stood by the search at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. I would not call it a raid. I would call it the execution of a lawful search warrant. And defended the FBI's rank and file amid a wave of threats in the wake of that search. We did uh, stand up a whole dedicated unit to focus uh, on threats to FBI uh, uh, individuals, FBI employees and FBI facilities because of the uptick that we saw uh, over that time period. Ray facing off against some of his toughest congressional critics on the House Judiciary Committee, where Republicans have threatened to slash the bureau's budget and accused FBI leadership of political bias. People trusted the FBI more when J. Edgar Hoover was running the place than when you are. Respectfully, Congressman, in your home state of Florida, the number of people applying to come work for us and devote their lives working for us is over up over 100 percent. We're deeply proud of them and they deserve better than you. All as Democrats took shots at their GOP colleagues. We are here today because MAGA Republicans will do anything to protect Donald Trump, their savior no matter how unfounded or dangerous it may be to do so. Democrats also needling Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan for once defying a subpoena in the House January 6th investigation. Quite rich to me that you're hearing all of these allegations from somebody who won't even respond to a lawful subpoena. Now, Republicans on this committee, and particularly the chair, Jim Jordan, have made a big deal of their belief that the leadership of the FBI is somehow biased against conservatives. And Chris Ray was asked about this during this hearing. He said it is insane to him the notion that he would be biased against conservatives, especially given his personal background. And his background is that he's a registered Republican, and he was appointed into this position by Donald Trump, a former Republican president. Sarah Murray, CNN, Washington. All right, let's bring in senior crime and justice correspondent Shimon Prokopez, Reuters White House correspondent Jeff Mason, CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams, and Olivia Troy, the former Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. Shimon, I want to start with you. So I think one of the issues with a five-hour hearing, the way this was kind of constructed, is you miss what may be important elements or nuggets or news. 
You've watched the FBI very closely for years. What stood out to you in this hearing? Look, I think this is supposed to be oversight, and I think there are legitimate concerns over some of the FBI practices and some of the surveillance issues, uh, certainly the Durham report and just the initial Russia investigation. Those are all very legitimate and questions that need to be asked. But instead, what you have here is the FBI director for five hours basically trying to bat down conspiracy theories, political agendas, uh, and really just trying to fight for the rank and file uh, of the FBI. And this is what they wanted to see. You know, the rank and file, certainly they needed to hear this from the FBI director. And I think we saw him in a way we have not seen him before. Uh, you know, he was throwing some shade, certainly uh, at the former president. The fact that, you know, when he says, look, you know, I know a skiff, a bathroom, a, a ballroom uh, and a bedroom is not a skiff. Right. He didn't need to say that. But there's a reason why he was saying that. And I think the whole exchange there with Matt Gates, you know, the fact that uh, no one wants to work at the FBI. And he's like, well, people in your district at 100 percent rate, we're getting people uh, to apply for this job. Mm-hmm. And. This is what the rank and file wanted to see from him. And I also think what's happened is that for the uh, director is that he doesn't need to feel or fear that potentially, like when he did under the former president, President Trump, that he was going to lose his job if he said something wrong. He's got some protection now. And so that's why I think we saw a different side of him. But we saw him there in a very different way than I think we've ever seen him before. Yeah, you said he was throwing some shade. Oh, yeah, I mean. It was really interesting when he addressed the issue of whether he was biased. We heard Sarah talk about it. But I want to, like, listen to him in his own words, how he responded to the question of him being biased, the FBI being biased. Let's listen. The idea that I'm biased against conservatives uh, seems somewhat insane to me, uh, given my own personal background. As to how we are approaching our work of protecting the American people and upholding the Constitution. It starts with me having emphasized to all of our folks over and over and over again in everything we do that we need to do the right thing in the right way, and that means following the facts wherever they lead, no matter who likes it. Olivia, what was your take on that, and how harmful do you think these attacks are on the country? Look, I think it was important for him to state that. I mean, I think it's it's insane that we have Republicans attacking someone like Chris Ray, who served in the George W. Bush administration with me, someone who is well-respected in law enforcement circles. I mean, you know, he was confirmed with all Republican votes voting in favor of him in his confirmation, right? It's amazing how much this is boomerang to turn around and attack him because it's politically convenient right now in this moment. I think it's a disgrace. I also think that in the eyes of the international community, I watched that hearing yesterday and all I kept thinking was for our national security and our homeland security, both domestically to undermine the confidence like that in a a federal law enforcement organization and internationally, our foreign adversaries must have been laughing yesterday because they're watching Republican leaders destroy the credibility of our own agencies in such a manner that it's very, you know, it, it's eroding at the fibers of what our country is based well, on, which is rule of law and our the, democracy. The whole thing of defunding the FBI, right? I mean, this was something that, you know, came up with defunding the police and, and what happened there. But yet now you have Republicans who are sitting there saying, well, you know, defund the FBI and, and there's issues over now they're going to give them money for a new building. I mean, it... it sort of went into places that it, it should not have gone. And it took away from what 
they're supposed to be doing because there are legitimate questions about the FBI and yeah. things that they need yeah. to be That's asking. what I want to ask you yeah. about, the legitimate questions, because Shmo makes a great point. From yeah. an oversight perspective, if you look through the Durham report, if you look through yeah. some of the surveillance issues on Pfizer-related issues, if you yeah. look through January 6th, frankly, if you try and dig in on some of the Hunter Biden stuff and how long that investigation took, there are legitimate questions that should be probed by Congress. Even if it's not a matter of legitimate specific questions, the whole enterprise is itself legitimate and ought to be legitimate. It's a core function of Congress that they ought to oversee, number one, how the FBI is spending the American people's money, and number two, how they're carrying out their enforcement mission, which is both not just law enforcement, but counterterrorism as well. It's the only law enforcement entity uh, in our government that's both law enforcement and counterterrorism. And so with respect to Hunter Biden, ask the questions about whether uh, the Justice Department is politicized or the FBI is politicized, and it's a fair question to ask. Uh, uh, the Durham report, same thing, the fair question. But what happens here uh, is that the current majority then takes it into the whole government is stacked against you. There's a conspiracy between Pfizer and Google and, uh, and, and vaccines and all kinds of nonsense that really gets away from the core function that they ought to be performing, which is making sure that law enforcement is serving the American people. And there's just a lot of noise. Yeah. And just to take a step back here, I mean, you know, this is supposed to be the Republicans are supposed to be the party of law and order, right? Exactly. I mean, how did we get here, Jeff? Yeah. No, we were talking about that a little bit before. It's it's so off brand with what the Republican Party used to be. And that's sort of an example of where Trumpism has taken that party. It's raising questions about defunding the police, defunding the FBI, being anti-law enforcement when that was really a core principle of who the Republicans were. And I think that, I mean, I understand politically why the Trump-associated law, Trump lawmakers are asking questions like that, some of them legitimate, yeah. many of them resonating with people in President Trump, former President Trump's base. But it's going to bring up questions during the general election that I know the Democrats are going to ask, and, and look, the Biden people are going to ask about, wait, we, we are pro-law enforcement, and where are you guys? You know, and I think a lot of this is focused on Christopher Ray, the man. Well, he's a registered Republican, therefore, you know, hold your fire. I worked in law enforcement for a long time, both at ICE and the Justice Department. It's anecdotal, I, you know, and I'm not, I never did a card check here. Law enforcement skews pretty conservative at the sure. federal level. And the, and the idea that it is this deep state cabal of people who are out and colluding to go after Republicans is nonsense. If you've talked to FBI agents or worked with them uh, and talked about politics at all, which people don't, uh, it's, it's a truly mind boggling uh, allegation about sort of the rank and file and where their orientation is and, and the fact that they're, they're working hand in hand uh, with political leadership at the White House to go after Republicans. It's simply nonsense. I will say, to Jeff's point, you feel like Democratic ad makers, like the light bulbs are just going yeah, off in their heads throughout the course of the series. Also, yeah. if you guys are talking about cool stuff before the show, don't yeah. save Sorry it that. for the panel. Yeah. For the panel. This is not a green room. We were just getting more stuff. We were getting more stuff. Okay, all good. Thank you all so much, Shimon, Elliot, Olivia, Jeff, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Jeff, stay with us. Well, tornadoes are rare near Chicago, but folks around the Windy City had to dodge multiple twisters, including passengers waiting for flights at O'Hare. A live report coming up. And authorities hunting for a prison escapee now say a drone may have been flying near the Pennsylvania prison he broke out of using bedsheets tied into a makeshift rope. And they're warning the murder suspect may be armed. More on that coming up. Well, happening right now, you're looking at President Biden just moments ago meeting 
uh, in Helsinki, Finland, at the Nordic Summit, meeting with critical leaders uh, in the Nordic countries, including the Finnish president, Sole Nonisto, the newest member of NATO, the 31st member, uh, Sweden's leader, also there. They will be the 32nd very shortly. It's an opportunity for the countries to bolster security co- cooperation amid threats from Russia and China. We're going to be keeping an eye on this meeting. We'll bring you the latest throughout the course of the morning. And new overnight, rare tornadoes ripping through towns just miles outside of Chicago. The National Weather Service confirming multiple twisters touched down near the city last night. This one right here tearing through a field in Elgin, about 30 miles northwest of Chicago. But at least one tornado touched down just 12 miles outside the city. CNN's Adrian Broadus is live in Chicago for us this morning. Adrian, what more do we know about the damage here? Well, Pamela, good morning to you. Elgin is just one of those locations where the National Weather Service says tornadoes touch down. The damage is widespread. Even though these storms were powerful, as you can see from the images here, there are no reported injuries. We heard from witnesses who were caught in the middle. Here's what they had to say. The tornado come right out of the sky, was over our car, it was spinning. I was I seen two guys taking a film and I'm looking up and here it comes down towards our car. I moved my car over and it just rolled right over us and this just started destroying everything. So it destroyed some property. It also halted air travel for a moment. And folks who were passing through O'Hare International Airport were told to shelter in place. Today, the cleanup begins. Pamela? All right, Adrian Broadus, thanks so much. We're also new this morning. Pennsylvania officials increasing the reward to almost $20,000 for the capture of escaped inmate Michael Burham. State police say the 34-year-old is wanted for kidnap, murder, arson, and carjacking, and he's considered armed and dangerous. Now, the self-taught survivalist escaped through a hole in the roof last Thursday using bedsheets, you can see them right there, to rappel down. Officials are searching surveillance cameras and looking at several clues. Just prior to the escape, there was a drone flying in that area. It could also be that it was somehow connected to his escape. Burham's ex-girlfriend says he's previously set her car on fire. She tells CNN affiliate WICU she's in protective custody while he's on the loose. It's either going to end because he is exhausted, dehydrated, starving, and he comes out because of that, or it's going to end with a body bag. Police are interviewing, are also interviewing possible accomplices in the case and believe Burham is still in Warren County. The last American standing now out of the men's singles at Wimbledon. A look at Christopher Eubanks's inspiring underdog run at the tournament just ahead. Plus, we hit a major turbulence, which was petrifying. Four people were injured after a Florida-bound Allegiant Air flight hit severe turbulence. How the passengers describe what they experienced. That's coming up ahead. Cinderella run. I want to be clear. Ends the Cinderella run 
this chapter of yeah. it. The Cinderella story for American tennis player Christopher Eubanks. He lost his quarterfinal match yesterday at Wimbledon against uh, Russia's Daniil Medvedev, currently ranked number three in the world. But let's put this in context. Eubanks proved it's definitely not going to be the last you'll see of him. I definitely believe a lot more in my ability to contend with some of the best players in the world. It, it's tough to really know until you've played some of the best players in the world. I've seen how my game can stack up against them, how I can disrupt them, how I can frustrate them. Joining us now, CNN sports analyst, USA Today sports columnist, Ottawa Hills Green Bear, Christine Brand. <laughs> Hello, Green Bear. <laughs> we went to the same high school. Yeah. Um, Chris, so this has been my favorite story of a long time. Yeah. It will probably be eclipsed by the Women's World Cup, but I have absolutely loved and embraced and consumed everything I could possible uh, about Chris Eubanks. Mm-hmm. Talk about the meaning of, why, why did this story capture people's attention? One, I think we haven't seen an African-American man win Wimbledon since Arthur Ashe in 1975. So two generations, right? Um, An American man hasn't won Wimbledon at all since Pete Sampras in 2000. So the women, of course, have dominated, the Williams sisters. But the idea that an American man could actually win Wimbledon again, I think that's fantastic. This young man has kind of always been out there. But he has never had the confidence. He's admitted this, Phil, that he said, you know, I just didn't know if I belonged. So he's been talking to people like Naomi Osaka and Coco Goff, who've been pumping him up to get to this point. He also has never liked grass. He called it the stupidest surface possible. <laughs> and then he goes and wins the uh, uh, preliminary tournament right before. before Wimbledon. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mallorca. So now he comes in with a full head of steam. He's six foot seven. He is 20, what, 27 years old. And he has the run of his life. And you're right. It's about the potential because he's so good and he has his head screwed on straight. And by the way, you know what he's doing in his other job is to be a tennis yes, channel yes. commentator. Right. Mm-hmm. Which he thought he might have to shift to full time. He learned from that, right? He, he said he learned from being a commentator and watching other players play and analyzing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think it means all of us now might have to try to make a Wimbledon. Clearly, (laughs) U.S. Open, we're coming. Watch out, world. Um, It's so beautiful. It it really is. It was a beautiful run. And as Phil said, this is just one chapter, right? I mean, it it really, it's exciting to think about what the future holds for him. Pamela, absolutely. And you know what? He seems to get it, right? There's sometimes we're sick of athletes who seem full of themselves or a little too much or whatever. He is us. You know, when you hear him talk, when you see him do the interviews, when you see him play, it's almost like, well, that's the kid next door. That's, you, can, you can find a, a reason to cheer for this young man almost more than, than some of the others who might be throwing a tantrum or a fit. He deserves it. He's put in his time, and now he's there. And to watch him move forward, I think, will be fantastic. I just want my kids to watch his press conference yesterday. I thought it was just it very powerful and very kind of head on straight to mm-hmm. your point. Um, I do want to ask you, on the other side of the draw, the women's side, there's also a spectacular story. Uh, Ukraine's uh, uh, Alina Svitolina has been making headlines, advanced to the semifinal, but also you know, where she came from, uh, in particular with the conflict that's ongoing there, but also having just given birth in October. I, I want to play something that she said about the war itself. Sure. I think war made me stronger and also made me like mentally um, mentally stronger and, and mentally, you know, I, I don't uh, take uh, um, difficult situations as a like a disaster, you know, because, you know, they, they are worse things in, in life. Yeah, you know, 
I, I think this is a Netflix documentary in the making when you consider it, and I'm not making, saying that in jest. From Ukraine, she has vowed she would not shake hands with any Belarusian or Russian uh, player, and there are several in the tournament. Um, she, as you said, she just gave birth. So she had her daughter in October. She's just come back to tennis in April. And here she is having the run of her life. And just like Eubanks, it's one of those stories that if people are kind of sick of sports or sick of hearing about contracts or steroids or whatever, you look at this and you say, boy, this is about as good as it gets to see this woman playing her best. Again, the perspective she has. And of course, knowing what it means to her and her fellow Ukrainians. She went today. I think she wins today, and then she's in the Wimbledon final. There we go. There you go. Put money down, don't gamble. But if you do, Chris Brennan has given (laughs) you advice. Christine Brennan, it's great to see you. Thank you. You too. Thank you. And up next, our tennis sensation, Chris Eubanks, will join us himself after ending his Wimbledon dream. How he's feeling this morning. Can't wait for this segment. Favorite one of the morning. So excited. Just ahead. And inflation falling for a 12th straight month, even after the Federal Reserve paused its aggressive rate hike. So do our experts think Bidenomics is working? Plus, our own Wolf Blitzer just sat down with the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin moments ago, what he told Wolf about Ukraine's future in NATO. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. And guess what? Bidenomics is working. Remember that? You're probably going to be hearing it a lot more. It was a comment President Biden made two weeks ago, raised some eyebrows. Republicans thought it was an attack line. Uh, made for them. Some Democrats didn't necessarily love the tagline, but now the White House has gotten some news that could definitely bolster that claim. The rate of inflation slowed to 3% year over year in June. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's a sharp difference from this time last year when inflation had spiked to over 9%. Wall Street, pretty stoked about the news. All major indices closing up yesterday. Now, when President Biden unveiled his 2024 sales pitch for Bidenomics two weeks ago, Republicans have said they saw that tagline ripe for potential political attacks, co-opting it to describe the not-so-bright spots of the current economy. Democrats, they were grumbling a little bit. Even Biden seemed to hesitate to fully embrace the moniker. I got asked by a press person this morning, getting on the helicopter in Washington, why, when I asked you about Bidenomics a long time ago, you said you didn't know what it was. I said, I didn't name it Bidenomics. I didn't realize the economist in the Wall Street Journal did. But I think it's a plan that I'm happy to call Bidenomics. He's getting there. It took some time. (laughs) Wasn't wasn't fully all in there for a couple of weeks. Well, here to discuss the news on inflation, Bidenomics generally, Bloomberg News White House correspondent, Akela Gardner, New York Times Federal Reserve and Economy reporter, Gina Smialik, and Reuters White House correspondent, Jeff Mason. Mason, I got to warn you, man. Uh, current and two former Bloomberg people with yes. the Reuters guy. There was a wires battle going on here. Um, I can hold my own in the wires battle. <laughs> no you guys give me a try. <laughs> Gina, I think the question right now is two things can be true here. Um, that was a very good number yesterday. There's no question about it. And yet, it's particularly if you look through kind of the various sectors, prices are still high. The American people haven't responded when you look at polling uh, in terms of how people are feeling right now. What's your takeaway for the actual tangible impact when it comes to inflation right now? Yeah, so this was an incredibly hopeful report, but not one that says that we are past this period. You know, 3% is great. It's a third of where we were last summer. But if you take out food and fuel, which are pretty volatile, they move around a lot month to month, we're still at 4.8% inflation. And so I think that this is great news probably the best inflation report we've gotten in this sort of inflationary period, but it's not the end of the road yet. 
and it's important to know, too, the, about the wage growth, right? That wage growth is, is notably outpacing inflation for the first time since March 2021, I believe. It's up more than 4% in the past year. So how significant is that? How should we view that in the context of everything? I think specifically for high-income earners, their wage growth has been significant. But for folks that are on fixed income or minimum wage, they are not seeing those same effects. And when you have high prices on groceries and things like clothes, they are not getting some of those things priced in when they're going to the grocery store, when they're paying for rent. And so they're not really feeling the the effects that Biden talks about when he says Americans are better off now than they were before the pandemic. Jeff, to that point, I think that's always the interesting one because there was such a a kind of uh, laser focus on the lower quartile when it comes to this administration and how they were trying to uh, try and spread around what's Biden say, the trickle down economics is what he hates. He wants to bottom up, middle out. I should have memorized that based on the three million times I've heard it in the course of the last two and a half years. But the idea itself, when you look at the broader economy in terms of the scale of the recovery, the durability of that recovery and the general economy, if you compare the U.S. to other G7 countries, both on inflation and on growth and on jobs, it's outpacing all of the nearest competitors. And yet, and I think my question, particularly when we talk about the wage growth, is when does this start to settle in and sink in or does it? Well, and I think that's the, the, the fear hanging over the economy, hanging over Americans who may be seeing some of these really positive numbers, but still not entirely feeling it at home. It's also the political sort of sword hanging over the, the Biden campaign. Say Democles. Thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> Democles. <laughs> uh, that, that is a concern. You know, I think the, the Biden folks have a great story to tell. And it just so happens that it's coming right after this branding pitch with Bidenomics. They... To some extent, I thought it was ironic that President Biden was overseas yesterday, you know, Mm -hmm. talking and and negotiating about NATO when he probably would have very much liked to have been in Washington or gone out and done a a big, big statement about the the inflation report. That said, he'll have another opportunity and he will no doubt talk about that. But there are still concerns among not just political people, but average Americans, all of us, about some of the underlying issues in the economy that, that haven't gone away. I think one thing that Democrats are hoping is that the economy is not the end all be all. Right. We saw in the midterms that the economy was this huge issue. But things like abortion, threats to democracy were just as important, if not more important for some voters. And I think they're sort of still hoping. And that's why we're seeing Biden center freedom, abortion, these other topics in his campaign pitch as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm just wondering, as someone who's not an expert like you all are on the economy and what all of this means, um, you know, there was so much talk about a recession, possible recession. How does that fit into to the picture? Does it does it give you more hope that there won't be? Yeah. So I think that this report yesterday was probably a very good sign in that direction. We are not guaranteed to miss a recession at this point, but it does mean that the Federal Reserve might not have to do quite as much with interest rates, might not have to hit the brakes on the economy as hard as they otherwise would have to to get inflation down, which definitely improves our chances of missing a recession. That said, I do think that for people at home, there's still that concern hanging over their heads. And beyond that, we still do have 3% inflation on top of 9% inflation last year. What that means is that prices are still going up. So they've already gone up a lot and they are still increasing, which I think is maybe why we're not seeing some of that relief in the voter and in the consumer confidence statistics yet. Gina, can I ask you, just because I'm curious, we're out of time, and so naturally I'm going to keep talking, which infuriates the control <laughs> room, but I love this topic and they know that. Um, Lael Brainer, the National Economic Council uh, director's speech yesterday, where she kind of took a shot at those who thought there would have to be significant job loss in order to tame inflation. 
Um, yes, it, it's a very kind of weedsy to some degree. But this battle, uh, give us the juice on this. Like, yeah. I love this fight. This was Lil Brainerd's victory lap speech yesterday. She just, it was very, she took a couple of shots at people who have been saying that the economy couldn't do it. We had to see higher unemployment. There was absolutely no way inflation could come down without it. She was just kind of owning them throughout the speech because she has been arguing for years now, including when she was vice chair at the Fed before she became the National Economic Council director, that you could get this kind of moderation, that you could see a world where things came down. And she thinks that if, you know, corporations kind of get in line, stop trying to pad their profits so much, you could see the rest of the disinflation. And so yesterday's report was very good news for the White House. It was particularly good news for Lael Brainerd. Can't shade. All right. I mean, Did you get your shade. fix? Yes. You good? Okay, so good. Right <laughs> I don't know about the control room, but I'm glad that you're happy. All right. Thank you all so much. Thanks, okay, guys. love Appreciate you. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much. All right, coming up. So you have no doubt that after the war, Ukraine will become a member of NATO? I, I have no doubt that that will happen. That's Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin sitting down with our Wolf Blitzer, that exclusive interview. Coming up next. President Joe Biden will be spending the final day of his high-stakes overseas trip in Finland. Leaders have ended a two-day summit with the promises of unwavering support for Ukraine, but still no hard timeline for membership of the alliance. Our commitment to Ukraine will not weaken. We will stand for liberty and freedom today, tomorrow, and for as long as it takes. People trusted the FBI more when J. Edgar Hoover was running the place than when you are. FBI Director Christopher Wray pulling no punches in critiquing former President Donald Trump's sloppy retention of classified documents. There are specific rules about where to store classified information in a skiff. In my experience, ballrooms, bathrooms, and bedrooms are not skiffs. It was a bizarre hearing. Tens of millions of Americans face dangerous triple-digit temperatures this weekend. People don't understand that the heat is very dangerous. Cleanup underway after multiple tornadoes touched down in the Chicago area. Tornado come right out of the sky, was over our car. I moved my car over and it just rolled right over us and just started destroying everything. The deadline has passed and still no deal between SAG-AFTRA and the studios. We are not being paid a fair share of the pie. Unions are demanding better payments for streaming platforms and limits on the use of AI. I'm worried about spending the next 10 or 20 years of my career without a fair contract. A group of people who found themselves trying to save a man's life with the entire world watching. Please welcome this year's recipient of the Pat Tillman Award for Service, the training staff of the Buffalo Bills. Jamar, first and foremost, thank you for staying alive, brother. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you. My buddy Phil made it to almost four four mornings. Yeah, we got two hours left, and they're two awesome hours, so I'm very excited about that, including keeping our focus on one of the big events of the entire week. Right now, President Biden closing out that high-stakes trip to Europe with a show of force in Russia's backyard. He's meeting right now with Nordic leaders in Finland, the NATO alliance's newest member. Helsinki only about 120 miles or so from the Russian border. Mr. Biden's final stop in Finland comes after a critical NATO summit in Lithuania. The allies rallied behind Ukraine and Sweden is now on the cusp of joining the alliance right behind Finland. It's a huge strategic blow to Vladimir Putin. Here's what Biden said to the Finnish president just a short time ago. 
Coming together, and I really need it. It would be an incredible asset to NATO and to the world. I've been doing this a long time. I don't think NATO's ever been stronger. And brand new this morning, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin just sat down for an exclusive interview with our own Wolf Blitzer following the NATO summit. And CNN anchor and host of the Situation Room, Wolf Blitzer, graces us all with his presence now with this exclusive interview. So tell us, Wolf, what did the Defense Secretary tell you after the conclusion of this historic NATO summit? He was very, very upbeat about the prospects eventually Pamela, of uh, Ukraine joining NATO, said he has no doubt that that eventually will happen once the war ends. I want to play a clip, a little excerpt from the extensive uh, exclusive interview I had with the U.S. Defense Secretary. Listen to this. From a military standpoint, Mr. Secretary, how close is Ukraine to meeting NATO standards? Well, there are a number of things that, uh, that uh, will, will have to be done, as you know. Um, they, uh, a, a big part of their inventory is, uh, is legacy equipment, uh, and, uh, and so in, in terms of training and equipping, there, there's work to be done, but we're doing that work as we're helping them uh, as they fight this war. Uh, and so uh, things have been done up to this point. There's more that will need to be done uh, to ensure that they have a full complement of capability. So. so you have no doubt that after the war, Ukraine will become a member of NATO? I, I have no doubt that that will happen. And uh, we heard uh, just about every uh, heard all of the countries in the room uh, say as much. And I think that was reassuring to, uh, to President uh, Zelensky. Uh, but there are other things that have to happen as well, you know, uh, judicial reform, uh, um, you know, uh, things that, uh, that, uh, make sure that the democracy is in good shape. And so those things will take place over time. So. How much time do you think it will take after the war? Let's assume the war ends, God willing it will end someday. How much time will it take for NATO to join, for, for NATO to welcome Ukraine as a full member? I, I won't speculate on that, Wolf. I will just say that all the countries that, uh, that I've witnessed are, uh, are interested in moving as quickly as possible. So you think all 31 members of NATO right now want Ukraine in? I think uh, it'll be 32 by that time, but uh, I, yeah, it, right. But I do believe that uh, that everyone uh, wants uh, wants Ukraine to be on board. As I said, Sweden is now set to join NATO. Uh, how is it, from your analysis, and, and you've got good analysts, uh, how is Putin reacting to this expansion of NATO? Well, I, he, I'm sure Putin's very concerned. Uh, this is probably something that uh, he didn't expect to happen, although President Biden warned him of this uh, at the very beginning. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, he's brought NATO closer to his doorstep. Uh, and, and so, you know, if you were him, you, you'd certainly be concerned about what, what you're seeing. Uh, but countries like Sweden and Finland bring a lot to the alliance. And we're we're happy to have them on board. You know, I was just in Sweden a couple of weeks ago. I uh, got a chance to spend time with the Minister of Defense and, uh, and visit some of their troops, look at their capabilities. Uh, it, they will bring value to the, uh, to the alliance right away. And it's a strong democ democracy, uh, Wolf, and that's, that's really a, uh, the most important point. 
The defense secretary was very, very upbeat about uh, the unity of the NATO alliance right now, saying that all of the countries of, of the NATO, this NATO alliance, they are working together to help make sure that Ukraine remains free and that uh, Ukraine wins this war against the, uh, the Russian, that the Russians invaded Ukraine and Ukraine eventually wins. Uh, he was very upbeat about what the, uh, U, the, the NATO allies are also doing as far as spending for defense purposes to relieve some of the pressure on the U.S. It was all very, very significant, Pamela. Uh, and it's only just the beginning because they're very confident that at least for now, uh, the defense secretary believes things are moving in the right direction. Wolf, I did want to ask you, what did Secretary Austin tell you about that controversial decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine? He defended it very strongly, saying that uh, the Ukrainians really need these cluster bombs right now, and that they will be able to deal with them in a safe and secure way. Uh, he knows, uh, and he said he personally has been involved in deploying uh, cluster munitions over the years. He knows a lot about these cluster bombs. But he says that the training that will go in will try to make sure that uh, the Ukrainians only use these cluster bombs in underpopulated, non-populated areas, because they're very, very dangerous. More than 100 countries, including several NATO allies, have banned the use of these cluster munitions because of the threat to civilians, some of these munitions, they don't necessarily detonate right away, but people can find them down the road and can cause all sorts of problems, death and injury, uh, and people have seen that. So they're very worried about it, but he's very confident that the Ukrainian military right now in this counteroffensive against the Russians, they need these weapons, they need them badly. The Russians have been using cluster bombs against the Ukrainians. The Russians invaded Ukraine, he says. The Ukrainians are only need these these weapons to defend themselves. They're not invading any other country as the Russians are doing, he said. So he was very upbeat about the president's decision to approve the authorization, the, the, the deployment of these cluster bombs to Ukraine. Wolf, I want to ask you about what we're seeing right now with uh, President Biden in Helsinki. He's been meeting with officials there, including the Finnish president. And it draws a stark contrast to when former President Trump visited Helsinki and met with Putin. How could we forget that? Yeah, I was there at the time in Helsinki, and it was very, very powerful at that time uh, when he uh, had a little news conference Thank you. Uh, in Helsinki, uh, then-President Trump, and he, he made it clear uh, that uh, he believed what Putin was saying, and Putin was denying interference in the U.S. presidential elections. Why would he do that? He seemed so sincere, uh, and he was basically rejecting the analysis, the conclusion of the U.S. intelligence community. In all my years of reporting, I don't remember a time when a U.S. president, especially overseas, would uh, reject what the U.S. intelligence community was saying and support what uh, a Russian leader was saying. Uh, it was a pretty extraordinary moment uh, and in, in stark contrast to what we're seeing with President Biden now in Helsinki uh, for this meeting. All right. Wolf Blitzer live for us in Vilnius for interviewing Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Wolf. And there will be a lot more of Wolf's exclusive interview with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. That's, of course, at 6 p.m. Eastern. You definitely need to tune in for that. Now to some CNN exclusive reporting. CNN has learned the special counsel team investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election interviewed Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson earlier this year. And she spoke to our Caitlin Collins last night. We responded earlier to a subpoena and uh, and then uh, responded to a request for a interview. We've been very 
upfront transparent about all that we endured throughout the 2020 election cycle and uh, and and have spoken with uh, anyone voluntarily who reaches out to us to ensure accountability for what occurred. And this comes just weeks after we learned the special counsel's team has also spoken with officials in two other battleground states, Georgia and Arizona, as part of the same investigation. Joining us now to discuss CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams and Olivia Troy, former Homeland Security and counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. Um, so I guess the first question is, what does this mean, right? I mean, this is the third state official we know of that the special counsel has interviewed as part of the investigation. What does it tell you in terms of what the special counsel is looking at and, and what it means for the overall investigation? It's the third state official, and I believe the fourth state at this point, because they have spoken to people in Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, um, and now Michigan. So what I'm seeing is a pretty broad national conspiracy uh, touching on any aspects of election meddling or, uh, or election interference. Now, they could be building one massive case, the, the mother of all uh, election conspiracy cases, um, that could be charged in any one jurisdiction, bringing in, uh, you know, bringing in evidence from all the others, or frankly, a far more narrow one, and they're simply going to all these different jurisdictions to gather more evidence in further support of the one smaller case they're building. But it's pretty vast, and, um, you know, as we got word a couple weeks ago that I think it had cost $9 million or something like that. Um, that's what it takes to build conspiracies of this size. But it's, it's rare to find this type of investigation uh, happening in so many different places all at once. And yet, Olivia, I think the interesting thing is all of this was public, right? These officials were talking about it yes. in the wake of the election. And I think to some degree, all of this now turning into a special counsel investigation and becoming part of it seems like an obvious in-game based on what we knew at the time. Why do you think it took this long for all of this to start to come together, at least in the public sphere? Well, to be honest, I think, I think it goes to show the thoroughness of the investigation and what they're doing here. Now, I think that I think they're getting close, hopefully, to wrapping it up. I think it needs to continue to move forward. I think they are now talking to people who are really there at the front lines of it in 2020, being bullied, being intimidated by these individuals. I think the other important thing to to note is that it's Republicans and Democrats, right? right? It is conservatives, liberals. It was a broad swipe at intimidation to overturn an election. Regardless of what political party you belong to, these are the people that are telling the truth and they're just speaking factually about what they faced. You know, and Phil, we, we've talked about this ad, ad absurdum, to use an, a Latin term. Over, oh, you like that? Yeah. Sure. Um, and, you know, I don't love making predictions on these things, of course. That's yeah, really uh, annoying. Actually. I know. It's pretty annoying to you. I, no, I, I, I look, love me, love my uh, lack of prediction. Uh, you, one does not interview the Secretary of State of one of the largest states in the United States without proceeding further, right? It, yeah. it would be very odd for any prosecutor to go at that level of government and talk to somebody and not be thinking about bringing pretty serious charges down the road. You almost got there. Almost got there. So this close to a prediction. I feel like by the end of I know. that's so It's a point. process. It's a process. <laughs> Elliot, <laughs> Olivia, thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. Well, Chris Eubanks out at Wimbledon, but the American tennis phenom story seems to only just be beginning. Guess what? He's going to join us live. Not wait to talk to him. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Chris Eubanks' thrilling and improbable Wimbledon adventure has come to an end, but this may be just the beginning of his story on tennis's biggest stages. The 27-year-old American losing yesterday in the quarterfinals to world number three, Daniil Medvedev. Eubanks, four points from victory in the fourth set tiebreaker, but Medvedev, the 2021 U.S. Open winner, he regrouped and he finished strong in the fifth set. Well, not too long ago, Chris Eubanks had his doubts about his own professional tennis career. He's taking a job as a commentator. You can see him there for the Tennis Channel. For years, he played in tennis's minor leagues. Now, his world ranking after Wimbledon will land somewhere in the 30s. I definitely believe a lot more in my ability to contend with some of the best players in the world. It, it's tough to really know until you've played some of the best players in the world. I've seen how my game can stack up against them, how... I can disrupt them, how I can frustrate them. And Chris Eubanks joins us right now. Uh, and I'm absurdly excited about this. Um, Chris, thanks so much for the time. I, you know, I was thinking yesterday as I was like, actually screaming in our office, watching the fourth set tie break, um, do you have any idea how much your life has changed uh, based on the last couple of weeks? Uh, for starters, thanks for having me. This is a really, really cool opportunity for me to sit here and talk to you guys. And uh, to answer your question, I, I don't think I really understand it just yet. Uh, I've tried to do a good job over the past three weeks of just kind of blocking out a lot of the outside noise and just focus on each match individually and each opponent. And naturally, I see my phone's been going off. Uh, I've, I had it on Do Not Disturb for probably the past two and a half weeks. So I, I tried to just kind of focus in on everything and allow all of my energy to be here in Wimbledon. But I think things are going to be a little bit different when I get back stateside. And honestly, I'm pretty excited about it. It's really fascinating um, when you talk about the confidence that you've gained. Now you're saying, look, I, can, I know I can go toe-to-toe with the best players in the world. And this is after years of toiling away with a low ranking. Tell us about how you were able to kind of like shift your frame of mind and gain this confidence to get to where you are now? I think one of the biggest things and the, the biggest changes that I made was just kind of devoting myself to a lot of the smaller details that sometimes can get overlooked, whether that's getting extra treatment on the body, even if you don't feel like there's anything wrong, um, making sure you're getting enough sleep, making sure you're, you're you know, eating a little bit better while on the road, and all of those things can add up to, you know, one or two percentage points better. But in the long run, doing it day after day, I think can have big, uh, big changes and, and big benefits. And I think that's one the major thing that I kind of changed. I said, you know what, let's go to the physio a little bit more. Let's get a little bit of extra stretching. I never had a problem of working hard on court or in the gym. But after that, once I left the gym or I left the court, I, allowed, I just kind of went on about my day, sat on the couch, watched a lot of tennis. I used to use film study as my excuse to not do anything else. But now I'm being a little bit more diligent about those other details, and I think it's paying off. Love that. We yeah. could all learn from that, right? Yeah. Also, I, I don't think it's paying off. I, dude, it's paying off. Um, can, can I ask you, one of, the, one of the best parts about this was watching tennis is a very kind of isolating uh, you are yourself. There is no team. Obviously, you have coaches and friends and family. Um, but watching other players on the tour react and respond and be so happy to watch what was happening. And what we pulled up was something some of uh, the other players on the tour said when your name came up just a little bit ago. Listen. Chris Eubanks. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Don't even get me started on that giraffe. Jesus. We love Chris. We love Daddy Long Legs. <laughs> I just, I, 
Well, Eubanks' nickname is really Toothpick because he's so skinny. <laughs> Coco Goff, uh, who's been a tremendous supporter of yours throughout the couple, last couple of weeks. Francis Yafo, uh, another very highly ranked U.S. guy. But it seems like everybody really likes you. Uh, how do you feel about those nicknames? Uh, so I have to give credit where credit is due. Coco is the one who started the giraffe nickname. So when you hear that and it's starting to take hold, that start that was started by Coco Golf. Francis Tiafo did start off the name Toothpick. Um, I, I used to fight them on it, but at this point, I, I view them as a ter- as terms of endearment. Um, I'm really close with 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 everyone that you, you you just mentioned, and a lot of the American players, a lot of the players on tour. It's just I I think I just have a good rapport. Um, with a lot of the, the men and women on tour. And, and I think seeing them be happy for my success is probably some of the most gratifying, uh, I think, feelings that I experienced over the past few weeks because they understand what it's like and they know the hard work and sacrifice that it takes to be able to have results like this. And, and honestly, we see each other probably, probably more than we see our own families. So it's a little bit like a second family. And when you see, you know, those people that you're competing against and competing with, be happy for your success. I think it really, really means a lot. I understand that dynamic. Tough. feel about yeah. you this week, Phil? Yeah. <laughs> Spending more time with you than my own family. But, you know, look, you may have lost this match against Medvedev, but overall this run has really been a victory for you. I mean, you've got this huge standing ovation um, when you walked off the court. What was that like and what's next for you? Uh, it, that was pretty surreal. That was pretty surreal to walk off the court and just to hear court one at Wimbledon just, you know, cheering for me, it, 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 it's it's special. It, it's something that you dream of as a kid growing up, watching Wimbledon on TV saying, man, I hope to be there one day. It's a bit emotional just being able to rewatch it again. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's really special. It's something that I'll never forget. And I, I can't wait to just try to use this momentum that I have now and this confidence, as you spoke about earlier, into the U.S. summer swing leading up into the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open is a tournament that I grew up going to with my family. It's a tournament that I've always wanted to do well at, and I'm looking forward to experiencing what that New York atmosphere is going to be like come September. Hey, Chris, real quick before, I know you got to go. Uh, how many text messages did you have when you took your phone uh, or you, you, you turned your phone back on? <laughs> so uh, right after the match, like directly after I looked at it, I had about 170. I waited about 15 to 20 minutes. I had to do a little bit. I wanted to still do my treatment, and my cool down and all of the things that I said that I was going to do, even after a loss. So I, after about 20 minutes, I think I was somewhere upwards of about 240 messages. My entire social media was filled with my face. And I was like, this is this is a bit weird. But it's, it's like I said, it's a great job to have. The yeah, new well, normal. Exactly. When you're in New York for the U.S. Open, come on set. We're going to be hanging yes. out. And give me your, te- your phone number. I'll start texting you 270 times, too. Chris, thanks. <laughs> thanks so Thank much, you. my friend. We appreciate it. We're rooting for you, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, new overnight, major Hollywood studios and streamers have failed to reach a deal with the union representing actors. What's next for them? What's next for your favorite shows? And severe turbulence rocked a flight as it approached a Florida airport. She was literally like Matrix, watched her go up in the air and just land straight down.
Well, new this morning, still no deal in the contract talks between the SAG-AFTRA Act- Actors Union and the Hollywood studios after their latest mid- midnight deadline came and went. Now, SAG-AFTRA says its national board will vote later today on authorizing a strike. Now, a yes vote, that would pave the way for the 160,000 members of the union to join the already striking writers and Hollywood picket lines. Well, two passengers and two flight attendants were injured after an Air Allegiant flight encounters what's being called extreme turbulence. And it happened on the jetliner's way to the St. Pete Clearwater Airport from North Carolina. CNN aviation correspondent Pete Montine joins us now. This is frightening. What was going on here? You know, this is really incredible because it feels like this keeps happening yeah. all the time. And I feel like I'm thrust into reporting on these turbulence incidents. What's so interesting about this is that we have heard from Allegiant. They confirmed that two passengers and two flight attendants were Hurt, But they've also confirmed, at least through air traffic control audio, and this was initially radioed in by the flight crew, that there were head injuries on board and somebody suffered from a broken ankle. And we know that paramedics met the flight at the gate in St. Pete Clearwater. This was an Airbus A320, Allegiant Flight 227. It was going from Asheville, North Carolina to St. Pete Clearwater at 36,000 feet. But we know from the flight tracking data that it came down to 13,000 feet. And I've looked back at the radar. There were some thunderstorms in the area at the time of this incident. Turbulence is caused not only by extreme weather like like thunderstorms, but also it can happen in clear air simply because of shifting layers of air, regardless of the cause. And that will be investigated by the FAA and potentially the NTSB. Passengers describe a real terrifying scene. More than halfway through descending, and all of a sudden we heard a small turbulence, and the the um, stewardess beside us fell to the ground, and then we hit a major turbulence, which was petrifying. And she was literally like Matrix, watched to go up in the air, and just land straight down, like the Matrix. Now the National Transportation Safety Board has said it is monitoring this incident. It is not yet investigating it just yet. But the NTSB has looked into this on commercial airlines for years, and it says turbulence is the top cause of injuries on commercial airliners. And it says, thankfully, airlines are getting better at forecasting this. But the big warning is that as climate change increases and we see these extreme weather events around the world, we're seeing it across the planet right now, that these may happen with more regularity. Hot air rises, it causes more turbulence, and that leads to these incidents. The big thing to underscore, and this is what the NTSB says, is always follow the instructions of the crew. Wear your seatbelt, even if the seatbelt sign is off. That's the big thing, although it's flight attendants who are often in the line of injuries here Mm -hmm. because they are the ones up and walking around and they can't protect themselves nearly as well as you can in your seat. Yeah, and and the predictability aspect is interesting too. I've been on recent flights where they said, you know, we're expecting turbulence in 10 minutes from now and so forth, but it is so frightening. And uh, wow, Pete, thank you so much. All right, well, right now, President Biden is meeting with other heads of state in Helsinki, Finland. We'll talk about the president's high-profile diplomatic trip with Senator Angus King. He attended the NATO summit. He's going to join us live next. But before we go to break, an ambitious sea otter in Santa Cruz, California, caught on video wrestling a board away from a surfer. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife now working to capture and relocate that otter, citing an increasing public safety risk. The five-year-old female has gained a reputation over the past several years for accosting surfers, stealing their boards and hanging tin. And yes, otters do have tin toes.
Right now, President Biden is participating in a summit with Nordic leaders. We'll continue to monitor, monitor that throughout the course of the morning. And that summit comes a day after NATO leaders offered a substantial show of support for Ukraine. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, still doesn't have a definitive roadmap to reach his goal of NATO membership for his country. Joining us now is Independent Senator Angus King of Maine. He's a member of the Armed Services and Intelligence Committees. He was also part of the bipartisan delegation that attended the NATO summit in Lithuania. Senator, thanks for joining us. I was struck uh, when you look at the entirety of the summit, White House officials feel very good. But President Zelensky's tweet on his way there really kind of threw things off for a day. How do you think it ended overall? I think it ended very positively all around. NATO has never been more unified in 50 years. And plus, two new members, including doubling the border with Russia when you have Finland and Sweden, uh, I, I think it was an extraordinary diplomatic success. Now, you know, put yourself in Zelensky's shoes. He's fighting a war. He's got people being killed on his, on his home turf. So he's, he wants to get as much as he can get and as strong as he can be. But I think in the end, he realized that what's really important is the aid that's coming, the military, the, the weapons, the material, the support, humanitarian support, rather than what are in the documents of NATO. So I, I think that's why he went away uh, somewhat mollified. Um, the issue of cluster munitions, President Biden signed off on them shortly before heading over to the NATO summit. Our Wolf Blitzer was asking the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, about them, defended the decision, uh, rationalized the decision as well. Uh, what's your sense of the necessity of them at this moment? Well, I got to first say that my initial reaction was negative uh, because of the history of cluster munitions. The danger of cluster munitions is, think of an artillery shell that shoots hand grenades. It's not one big explosion. It's all these things that go out. And uh, so it, it, the danger is un, unexploded ordnance that a child might walk over years later. Uh, however, here's number one. The Russians are using them big time. And it's a very dangerous and, and destructive weapon of war. So the, the, the idea of no cluster munitions on the ground in Ukraine, that's, that's gone by. The Russians are using them. Secondly, we're trying to dislodge the Russians. This is a very important weapon. Finally, the Ukrainians themselves are the ones that will suffer whatever negative consequences, and they want them. Because to them, and I think one of the Ukrainian generals said this, the danger of cluster, cluster munitions is much less than the danger of the Russians and what they're doing to our people. So I came away convinced after talking to a number of military people. And a final point is the, the, the danger of cluster, cluster munitions is the dud rate. How many don't right. go off? I, it's classified, but the dud rate of what they're being supplied is very low. So the risk is diminished. Plus, the Ukrainians have gotten very good at uh, demining and finding these things. They have, they have groups that are going out every day to, to deal with landmines, which the Russians have planted, in addition to any issues of cluster munitions. So that's a long way of saying tough decision, but I think the right one, given the fact that the Ukrainians themselves said, we need these to defend ourselves. Several of your colleagues have concerns related to U.S. sending, selling F-16s to Turkey. Do you believe those concerns will be mollified? I do, and, and I, think it, I think that's an, also an important and a difficult decision. These aren't, these aren't easy decisions. Right. On the other hand, Turkey is now agreeing to the admission of Sweden to NATO, which is a very important step and one that very few of us predicted going into this weekend. I was 
flying to Vilnius, and that was the major discussion on the airplane, is what is Turkey going to do? Well, President Biden pulled it off, along with Jen Soltenberg, the, the head of NATO, uh, and I'm sure the F-16s were part of that uh, agreement. Uh, Erdogan is a transactional kind of guy. Um, I do want to ask you that we have news uh, over the course of the last several days about a, a, a suspected Chinese hack of U.S. government uh, email systems, including targeting uh, Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo. You are very integral in the discussions of related to cyber. You're on the Intelligence Committee. What's your understanding of the scale and extent of the attack? Well, I, again, I, I got to be careful about classified information, uh, but it, it appears to be, number one, state-sponsored by the PLA, the People's Liberation Army of the Communist, Chinese Communist Party. Number two, it, it appears to be extensive. Number three, it certainly is deliberate. If all of those are true, China's got to pay a price. One of the problems with our cyber response over the years has been that there's been no response. Remember the Sony hack? Right. Nothing ever happened. And uh, I believe we have to be resilient. We have to defend ourselves. But ultimately, state actors and, and others who will attack us in cyberspace have to pay a price. There has to be a... a, a have you talked to White House officials or administration <laughs> officials about... Endless. In this specific case. I know not about this, no, not about this specific case, but I can assure you they know very well about my concern about it's essentially it's deterrence. Right. And when you get an attack like this, that's a failure of deterrence. That means they're not really worried about getting a response. We have to demonstrate to them that we have the capability to mess with them in a way that will cost them. And that's what's going to ultimately make them decide not to do it. I want in the Politburo or the Chinese Communist Party, somebody say, hey, boss, maybe we better not do this because, you know, they can whack us uh, in cyberspace. And, and so I think that's, I'm, I'm looking for a response from the administration. I do want to, we don't have much time left, but I do want to ask you, um, what breaks the logjam with Senator Tommy Tuberville and his blockade related to military promotion? I don't know because so you don't people, see an end. I don't because people point. are talking about. You know, we we had a meeting of the Armed Services Committee. We talked about the issues that he's concerned about. There were votes on the issue that he's concerned about. I I, I don't know. I, I don't know how we how we break that, but it's it's really harming our readiness. I interviewed a general yesterday who's going to be the chief of staff of the Army. We hope. And uh, I said, is this compromising national security? You know what he said? Yes. And so, I, I, you know, I, I just wish Senator Tuberville would, he's backed himself into a corner, but I wish he'd find an off-ramp. People are trying to find an off-ramp, but we can't give in to this, what amounts to hostage taking. Senator Angus King, Independent of Maine, thanks for your time, sir. Appreciate Thank it. you, Bill. Well, he says he was a loyal Fox News viewer and went to the Capitol on January 6th because he was persuaded to. Now he is suing the network because they, quote, turned on one of their own. The details of this new lawsuit up next. Well, Fox is facing yet another lawsuit with echoes of the Dominion case. This one from Ray Epps, the Arizona man targeted by conspiracy theorists who falsely claimed he led an FBI plot to orchestrate the January 6th insurrection. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson often naming Epps on his show. On January 6, 2021, the defendants directed, mobilized, and led members of the crowd onto the Capitol grounds and into the Capitol. End quote. Again, that's what you just saw Ray Epps try to do. But here's the difference. Others who have done that are in prison or facing long terms in prison. But no charges have ever been filed against Ray Epps, despite the fact there's no question he did it, because once more, it's on tape. That's very strange.
Well, now Epps is suing the channel and Carlson for defamation. The lawsuit alleges, quote, in the aftermath of the events of January 6th, Fox News searched for a scapegoat to blame other than Donald Trump or the Republican Party. Eventually, they turned on one of their own. Epps says he was an avid and loyal Fox News viewer and even a fan of Tucker Carlson. Here was Epps on CBS's 60 Minutes in April. He's obsessed with me. He's going to any means possible to destroy my life and our lives. Why? To shift blame on somebody else. Lepsis lawyer spoke with our own Anderson Cooper last night, who asked him if there's anything that he thinks would put the claims about his client to rest. I think that perhaps finally having a jury uh, find that the lies were told about Ray Epps that the, and then awarding him damages might finally put an end to it. But the truth is that lies haven't mattered to Fox or its viewers for quite some time. They put profits over people. They put fraud over facts. They put lies over legitimacy. And so I hope that it will uh, spell an end to it. But at the very least, they need to be held accountable for their, for their lies. Joining us now is CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy. Oliver, for those who haven't necessarily been paying super close attention to this, remind people what we know about Ray Epps and his involvement in the attack on the Capitol and how this all kind of ties together. Yeah, Phil, this is so interesting. If Fox News continues to learn that its election lies come with some serious legal consequences, and this from Ray Epps, who, as you said, was a loyal Fox News viewer. And his lawsuit's actually really interesting because he says he was at the U.S. Capitol that day because he believed the election lies that were being peddled on Fox News And then after he appeared at the Capitol, he became smeared uh, by Fox News as they looked for a scapegoat um, to pin a lot of the January 6th uh, rioting on. Uh, Of course, he said he was not working. He was not working with the government, as uh, was alleged by people like Carlson and others on the far right. But that really hasn't stopped any of these conspiracy theories. And at this point, he's suing the network because he asked for a on-air retraction or correction a few months ago. Ago, they never delivered that. Uh, and, and so he, I guess, is saying that he has no other option but to sue to hopefully clear his name. Now, I, I should also note that this does come after a number of election-related lawsuits for Fox News. Uh, of course, there's that historic Dominion lawsuit, but there have been others. A Venezuelan businessman settled with the network earlier this year for election-related lies. Abby Grossberg, a former producer, she just settled with the network. And so they really have to p- uh, pony up a lot of money to uh, untangle themselves from the election lies that they told in the aftermath of that 2020 election. All right, Oliver Darcy, thanks so much. And just ahead, more of Wolf Blitzer's interview with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, what he has to say about Tommy Tuberville's blockade of military promotions. Plus, we're learning U.S. cluster munitions are already in Ukraine, and a commander there says they could change the game on the battlefield. We're going to go there live. But first, in a historically white, male-dominated profession, a group of black women scientists are knocking down barriers marine biologists on a mission to promote diversity and inclusion in shark sciences. Their story is today's Impact Your World. I'm a shark scientist. I very quickly became aware that there's not a lot of people like me in the field. We had this sort of movement on Twitter of black scientists with the hashtag black in nature. When we started talking, we said, well, we should start a club. Minorities in Shark Science's mission is to change the culture so that people from historically excluded groups participate in marine science. 
We have programs like our Guild Guardians, which is curriculum that lives online to help educate people about sharks and move them from fear to fascination. We have camps for our kids, Science at the Sea, where we bring kids out to the ocean. And then we have Science on the Move for those kids that can't get to the ocean, and we can bring the ocean to them. We also have professional development so people can get very specific skills that they need to be successful in this field and help connect people with other people that are doing research. MIST has opened a lot of doors that I didn't think were feasible. Being 45 years old, pursuing my degree later in life. MIST reminds me that anything I want to do is possible. What I hope is that one day Minorities in Shark Sciences doesn't need to exist because barriers are eliminated. To learn more about organizations helping with shark conservation, visit CNN.com slash impact or text FINS to 707070 to donate. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The day I can't give the game everything on the floor is the day I'll be done. Lucky for you guys, that day is not today. LeBron James revealing his big decision. That's not a reveal. Come on, Come on. we knew he was going to play. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> we are also sticking around. I'm Phil Mattingly with Pamela Brown in Washington, D.C. Now, LeBron's announcement happened at last night's ESPY Awards, where Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin honored the training staff that saved his life when his heart stopped in the middle of a game. More on that ahead. And first, President Biden is making one final stop on his crucial European trip as NATO rallies behind Ukraine. And House Democrats are calling on Republicans to investigate their own so-called whistleblower after he was charged with arms trafficking and working as an agent for China. House Oversight Committee ranking member Jamie Raskin will join us live as he pushes for that investigation. Well, it is now emerging that Chinese hackers breached the email accounts of U.S. officials, including the Commerce Secretary. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. Well, good morning, everyone. Right now, President Biden is closing out his high-stakes trip to Europe with a show of force in Russia's backyard. He's meeting with Nordic leaders in Finland, the NATO alliance's newest member. And that comes after a crucial NATO summit where Biden made a solemn vow that the United States and its allies will not waver in their support for Ukraine. A short time ago, President Biden said NATO has, quote, never been stronger, as Sweden also prepares to join the alliance. Mr. Biden is set to take questions later this morning at a news conference. Meantime, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin just sat down for an exclusive interview with our very own Wolf Blitzer following the NATO summit, where they talked about Ukraine's future and NATO. From a military standpoint, Mr. Secretary, how close is Ukraine to meeting NATO standards? Well, there are a number of things that, uh, that uh, will, will have to be done, as you know. Um, they, uh, a, a big part of their inventory is, uh, is legacy equipment. Uh, and, uh, and so in, in terms of training and equipping, there, there's work to be done. But we're doing that work as we're helping them uh, as they fight this war. Uh, and so uh, things have been done up to this point. There's more that will need to be done. Uh, to ensure that they have a full complement of capability. So. so you have no doubt that after the war, Ukraine will become a member of NATO? I, I have no doubt that that will happen. And uh, we heard uh, just about every con- uh, heard all of the countries in the room 
uh, say as much, and I think that was reassuring to, uh, to President Zelensky. Uh, but there are other things that have to happen as well, you know, uh, judicial reform, uh, um, you know, uh, things that, uh, that uh, make sure that the democracy is in good shape, and so those things will take place over time. So. How much time do you think it will take after the war? Let's assume the war ends. God willing, it will end someday. How much time will it take for NATO to join, for, for NATO to welcome Ukraine as a full member? I, I won't speculate on that, Wolf. I will just say that all the countries that, uh, that I've witnessed are, uh, are interested in moving as quickly as possible. So you think all 31 members of NATO right now want Ukraine in? I think uh, it'll be 32 by that time, but uh, I, yeah, it, right. But I do believe that uh, that everyone uh, wants uh, wants Ukraine to be on board. As I said, Sweden is now set to join NATO. Uh, how is from your analysis, and, and you've got good analysts, uh, how is Putin reacting to this expansion of NATO? Well, I, I'm sure Putin's very concerned. Uh, this is probably something that uh, he didn't expect to happen, although President Biden warned him of this uh, at the very beginning. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, he's brought NATO closer to his doorstep. Uh, and, and so, you know, if you were him, you, you'd certainly be concerned about what, what you're seeing. Uh, but countries like Sweden and Finland bring a lot to the alliance, and we're, we're happy to have them on board. You know, I was just in Sweden a couple of weeks ago. I uh, got a chance to spend time with the Minister of Defense and, uh, and visit some of their troops, look at their capabilities. Uh, it, they will bring value to the, uh, to the alliance right away. And it's a strong democ democracy, uh, Wolf, and that's, that's really a, uh, the most important point. And CNN anchor and host of The Situation Room, Wolf Blitzer, joins us now. Wolf, such an important interview with the defense secretary, really illuminating. And he also talked to you about the controversial decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine. What stood out to you? He thought it was really important that the United States provide these cluster munitions or these cluster bombs to Ukraine. The Russians have been using these cluster bombs against Ukrainians, uh, and they've been devastating. The Russians invaded Ukraine. He points out that Ukraine needs these cluster bombs to defend themselves, to defend their territory, to defend their people. The Russians have been hitting civilian targets, as we all know, residential apartment buildings, schools, hospitals, and these cluster munitions will help the Ukrainians defend themselves. So he was very supportive of it. And he said that uh, even when he was an active duty military personnel before he became defense secretary, he, he personally dealt with cluster munitions. He knows all about them and they can be used in a safe and secure way. That's what he was saying. No, Wolf, you also spoke to Secretary Austin about Senator Tommy Tuberville's block on military appointments. What did he have to say? He was very, very disappointed in Senator Tuberville. He said this is a national security issue. What Tuberville, in effect, is doing is undermining U.S. national security. I've got a clip from the interview. Let me play this clip, this exchange I had with the defense secretary on Tuberville. Listen to this. Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville is blocking military promotions right now, confirmations uh, in, the, in the Senate, uh, because uh, he wants to protest the Pentagon's policy of ensuring abortion access for women who serve in the U.S. Uh, military. Is Senator Tuberville now actively undermining U.S. national security? No, thanks, Wolf. This is a national security issue. 
You know, we just talked about, uh, when we sat down a couple of minutes ago, what a complex uh, environment this is, you know, around, uh, around the world, quite frankly. We see uh, the tough things that we're dealing with in, uh, here in Europe as we continue to provide support to Ukraine and its efforts to defend its sovereign territory. Uh, we're working hard to make sure we keep the right balance uh, in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific and, uh, and strengthen our alliances. Uh, and uh, we need leaders to be able to do that. This is, uh, uh, th this is a national security issue. It's a readiness issue. And, uh, and we, we shouldn't kid ourselves. And I think uh, any member of the Senate Armed Services Committee knows that. Se Senator Tuberville said he's only spoken to you about this once. That was back in February. Why not have a conversation with him and get this resolved? I, I will. Well, I certainly will engage, continue to engage him. Yeah. But you're not doing it right now. I mean, it was, the last conversation was in February. It was in March, end of March. But, yeah, I'll, I'll engage him. You'll talk to him, and, and your message to him will be? He, he needs to lift the holes, Wolf. We, we, this is a national security issue. It's a readiness issue. And it's going to be the first time, uh, if uh, Tuberville continues to do what he's doing, that there won't be a commandant for the U.S. Marine Corps in about 160 years. There's always been a commandant. But if you can't get one confirmed by the U.S. Senate, that's going to be a major, major problem for the U.S. Marine Corps as well. So there's a lot going on right now. The Secretary of Defense has a lot on his plate, a lot going on, lots of problems uh, involving NATO and the alliance and all of that. Certainly problems involving China and Taiwan problems around the world. So he's got his hands full. He made that clear to me during the course of our interview. Yeah, and you mentioned China. What else did he say about that? It's really significant what's going on. The U.S. is going to make sure that uh, there is a dialogue, if, it, if at all possible, with China. He says the U.S. sees China as a competitor, uh, not necessarily uh, as an enemy or anything along those lines. He wants to try to reestablish direct communications, not only between himself and his Chinese counterparts, but with other U.S. officials and Chinese officials to make sure there's no blunders out there, especially because of all the interceptions that have been going on in and around uh, Taiwan. This is a very, very critically important military-related issue for the U.S. Defense Department. Uh, he's worried about what's going on. A lot of U.S. military personnel are worried. They want to make sure that what's going on in Taiwan does not explode into some sort of full-scale war. And, he, and he's sending these messages directly to the Chinese leadership. All right. Really a wide-ranging interview with the Defense Secretary Wolf. Thank you for bringing that to us. And you can see more of Wolf's exclusive interview with Secretary Austin tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Now to another CNN exclusive this morning. A Ukrainian general speaking to CNN from Absolutely. the battlefield, weighing in on the state of the fighting in eastern Ukraine and the U.S. decision to send cluster munitions. CNN's Alex, Alex Markhart is live in Dnipro, Ukraine, with more. Yeah, Phil, we sat down earlier today with General Alexander Tarnovsky. He is in charge of part of the southern front, arguably the most important part of this counteroffensive, as Ukraine tries to split that Russian-occupied land bridge that connects Crimea with Russia. Uh, he is very optimistic about what these clusters can do on the battlefield. He says that Russian troops are going to be very afraid. They may, in fact, vacate areas, he thinks, uh, where they could be most effective. He is keenly aware, he says, of how dangerous they are for civilians and says uh, that in line with the promise that was made to the United States, uh, that they will not be used in heavily pop populated areas and they will keep track 
of where these cluster munitions are used for future demining uh, operations. Here's a little bit more of what the general had to say. Take a listen. Have you used them already? And how much do you think they're going to change the fight? And Phil, after the U.S. made this announcement that they would be sending cluster munitions uh, to Ukraine, Russia responded quite angrily, saying that they would be forced to respond in kind. We heard former President Dmitry Medvedev, now a senior national security official, saying uh, that Russia should now empty its arsenal of what he called these inhumane weapons. Uh, Of course, as you know, Russia has been using these cluster munitions, their own, uh, since the very beginning of this war. And that was one of the main arguments uh, that the U.S. made in sending these cluster munitions to Ukraine. As for the progress on the counteroffensive, General Tarnovsky says that it has been slow. He says there has been some moderate success, uh, but he blames the months of preparation that the Russians had to lay out dense minefields and, and really the fierce attacks uh, that they have been carrying out since this counteroffensive began uh, about a month ago for the slow progress that Ukraine is making. Phil? I'm curious, Alex, given the time you've been spending on the ground there, I mean, the Biden administration has given Ukraine assurances that it will join NATO when the war ends and has given it new security guarantees until that happens. What is the reaction on the ground there to that? Well, Pam, I think it's mixed. Uh, You know, they're hailing this summit as a success. We know that they are coming back to, these leaders are coming back to Ukraine with less than they had hoped for. They really wanted a concrete timeline, uh, a map of how and when they would get to join NATO. They did not get that. So we heard President Zelensky going into the summit saying that it was uh, unprecedented and absurd. His tone softened over the following 48 hours as it became clear that he was going to be getting significant short and long term uh, aid packages and security guarantees. We saw the G7 uh, promise uh, long term security guarantees and and, and other kinds of support. Um, So they are hailing this as a success. Uh, but it is less than the, what, what they hope for. Eventually, uh, they will join NATO, and, and that's what they're really uh, grabbing onto, is, is this real assurance that once this war ends, that they will join NATO, and they'll join it in a streamlined fashion because the, the process was essentially reduced from two steps uh, to one step. So they are saying it was a success, but it was certainly less than they had hoped for when they went to Vilnius. Pam, Phil? All right, Alex Markhart, live in Ukraine. Thanks so much. The Biden administration is on defense this morning after we're now learning Chinese hackers breached the U.S. Commerce Department in an apparent spying campaign against about two dozen U.S. organizations. That's what two sources familiar with the matter tell CNN. And one source says the hackers assessed Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondi's email account. The attack is part of a wider breach. The White House and Microsoft acknowledged late Tuesday. Two sources familiar with the matter say the hackers also targeted email accounts at the House of Representatives. But it's unclear which offices or if their attempts were successful. Here's what the White House's John Kirby said about it just moments ago. Uh, We're obviously taking a fresh look at our systems uh, and our cloud computing uh, capabilities uh, to make sure we can uh, be more resilient in the future. Our networks are attacked every single day by cyber actors, uh, state and non-state actors all around the world. Uh, It is not uncommon for some of those state actors, Russia, Iran, uh, North Korea, China, uh, to be a part of that process. But again, I don't want to get ahead of where we are. And joining us now, former director of the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, Chris Krebs. He was fired by former President Trump via tweet after calling the 2020 election the most secure in American 
history. All right, Chris, so help us better understand what this means. How widespread is this attack and how sensitive is the information that's been exposed? Well, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, I think the good news here is that it was a fairly short duration attack. My understanding is that uh, they obtained or first accessed accounts at State Department in May of this year. Uh, It was discovered in mid-June and promptly notified to Microsoft, and Microsoft was able to close out the access. And as as you've mentioned, it's only a handful of accounts. However, as you point out, Secretary Raimondi's account was included in the compromise uh, set. And as some of your prior guests have mentioned, uh, talks with China are at an all-time high right now, uh, concluding just with Secretary Yellen's visit and a promise and a discussion about Secretary Raimondi's visit to China. Uh, why? Sanctions. There's the Xinjiang sanctions. Uh, there are a number of issues uh, that the White House is looking at with foreign direct investment in China and cracking down there. There's semiconductors and AI. Uh, so the this group went after very sensitive information from a diplomatic and trade perspective. Uh, I think uh, that they probably were not as successful as they would have liked, but it does highlight a number of issues with uh, the government's dependency on large technology companies and third-party providers. Yeah, Chris, it's a great point. Some people might be wondering why the Commerce Secretary, what Romano and her team have been leading on in terms of export controls, in terms of all the issues you laid out on the sanctions yeah. front, has been critical in terms of the U.S. kind of economic uh, warfare to some degree that they've had with China. Um, access to emails of a cabinet secretary, is that actually information that is that they can glean intelligence from? Well, any information can be intelligence. It doesn't have to be classified. Uh, diplomatic trade negotiations, sanction discussions can all be uh, flowing over unclassified channels. I think they're, they're I, look, I don't, I don't know how much email uh, Secretary Raimondi uses. Uh, I've known secretary, uh, cabinet secretaries in the past that uh, completely rejected the use of email or used it only minimally. Uh, so th- there is some hope that there was not a great deal of information here. But again, I, I do want to highlight that we are increasingly putting our trust in private sector providers of services. This isn't like the old days where you could maintain your own email with the server down the hall. Governments, banks, critical infrastructure, they're trusting the private sector, companies like Microsoft, to get it right. And time and time again, we see that perhaps there's an asymmetrical balance that the adversary has over a standalone private sector company. I expect that this will not be a one-day news cycle. Uh, I know Congress and uh, the White House are asking very uncomfortable questions, and I suspect Microsoft will be providing some pretty awkward answers. Just to understand the scope of this, I mean, do you think that we know the breadth of it, or do you think that there's still a possibility that there are still consequences of the hack that Microsoft or the government might not even be aware of yet? Absolutely. I I think that there are some fundamental questions like, how did this happen? When did this happen? You you really have to consider the signing key that the Chinese operatives were able to uh, obtain as a crown jewel. This was a money printing equivalent. This was a passport printing equivalent, as I saw in an article this morning. This was a trusted certificate that said, hey, I'm from Microsoft. You can trust me. And that allowed then the Chinese actors to uh, print their own access into email accounts. So we've got to figure out how it happened, when it happened, how broadly it was. And and I think there's another shoe to drop there. And did they steal other keys? 
Uh, so again, like I said, a lot of uncomfortable questions. I, I hope that we will get to the bottom of this, but unfortunately, it may be that just the information, the data is not there uh, in the Chinese were, were operatives were, were quiet and skilled. Mm. All right, Chris Crabb, really disturbing. Thank you. Well, FBI Director Christopher Wray defends the Bureau from a barrage of Republican attacks on Capitol Hill. What he said about accusations of bias against conservatives and the Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee is defending his whistleblower after he was accused of being an agent for China. The committee's Democratic ranking member, Jamie Raskin, will join us live. He's calling for an investigation. And new overnight, major Hollywood studios and streamers have failed to reach a deal with the union representing actors. What's next for them? And what's next for your favorite shows? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, CNN has learned that Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson has been interviewed by special counsel Jack Smith's office. And we're told the interview took place back in March. She is the latest state official to face questions as part of the investigation, looking into alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. This is what she told CNN last night. I think it's important that that evidence be taken seriously. And I have confidence that it is being taken seriously. And you know, we are uh, willing to go over and over again with, um, with the um, relevant authorities, everything we endured and experienced and witnessed to ensure, again, where there's evidence of a pernicious and strategic effort to overturn the will of voters, that there is justice that is served so it can't happen again. Joining us now, Democratic Representative from Maryland, Jamie Raskin. He is a former member of the January 6th Select Committee and the ranking member on the House Oversight Committee. Thank you so much for your time this morning. So Benson is the third state official to be interviewed by the special counsel that we know of. I mean, she's a secretary of state. As a former member of the January 6th Committee, what does this tell you about where the investigation is going? Well, it seems clear to me that Jack Smith, uh, the special prosecutor, is actually reconstructing the entire plot to overthrow the result of the 2020 presidential election, because that was how Donald Trump started. He went state by state to try to get the legislatures to overthrow the legitimate electors and install these counterfeit slates of electors pledged to him. So it seems to me that Jack Smith is uh, following the trail of evidence that Donald Trump left behind him. Yeah. And of course, the FBI is still investigating all of this. The FBI under attack by your colleagues across the aisle. They're accusing the FBI of, um, of weaponizing it and being political and being biased. Here's what Ray had to say about those accusations. The idea that I'm biased against conservatives uh, seems somewhat insane to me, uh, given my own personal background. As to how we are approaching our work of protecting the American people and upholding the Constitution. It starts with me having emphasized to all of our folks over and over and over again in everything we do that we need to do the right thing in the right way, and that means following the facts wherever they lead, no matter who likes it. Of course, it's Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, Republican himself. In your view, how harmful are these attacks on Wray and, and on the FBI as an institution? Well, they're extremely harmful because they're basically throwing the entire uh, apparatus of federal law enforcement under the bus in their eagerness to wrap themselves around Donald Trump's lies. They would prefer to have people believe that Christopher Wray, a Donald Trump appointee who himself is a conservative Republican, is involved in some kind of conspiracy against Donald Trump and his supporters rather than accept the fact that 
Donald Trump took with him uh, hundreds and hundreds of documents that didn't belong to him, many of them confidential, top secret. Um, and there's even photographic evidence of it, but they would prefer to concoct a whole uh, outlandish conspiracy theory rather than accept the possibility that their hero uh, was acting completely consistent with his character and thinking that he was above the law and took all of these documents and then refused to return them even when given multiple opportunities to do so. And as you all know, your, your colleagues across the aisle, they're also uh, very focused on going after the Biden administration in every way that essentially they can. I want to talk about this man, Gal Luft. He was he allegedly had damning information, according to James Comer, um, the, the ranking member there, related to Hunter Biden's activities in China. He has been indicted on serious charges from arms trafficking to sanctions violations to acting as an unregistered agent for China. And now you're asking your Republican colleague, James Comer, to investigate him, what do you think that would actually accomplish? Well, remember, this is their star witness. This is the person they've been promising for weeks and weeks and weeks will come forward and uh, blow the cover on the big uh, bribery plot that they've been unable to produce any evidence about related to President Biden. So they said this is the guy. As recently as Friday, uh, Chairman Comer was saying this is a very credible witness. Well, it turns out with the unsealed indictment from uh, yesterday or the day before that uh, Gal Luft himself is a fugitive from justice who's at large, uh, who uh, is facing an eight count indictment from November of last year for being uh, an unregistered foreign agent for Chinese government interests, uh, for making false statements to uh, federal agents and for engaging in uh, unlawful arms trafficking deals and uh, export trading Chinese arms for Iranian oil. And this is the guy that our colleagues want us to depend on for, uh, you know, blowing the cover on some non-existent bribery investigation. Uh, so, uh, look, the, the fact is that what they're going after was already considered by Donald Trump's appointee, a U.S. attorney in the Western District of Pennsylvania under William Barr, and they found nothing. They found no reason to proceed uh, from an assessment of the evidence to a full-blown investigation. Yeah. And so that should have been the end of the story. But instead, they're out there playing spy versus spy with these people who are basically using the Oversight Committee of the United States House of Representatives as a dupe. This guy is in hiding. Uh, he's a fugitive. And He's using uh, his ability to uh, wow the members of the majority of the Oversight Committee to wrap himself in some kind of legitimacy or authority. It's kind of like what George Santos has done with the Republican Party. I mean, they're attracting con men and well, people me, who are in hiding. Let me just ask you, though, because, you know, Comer, for his part, said, look, he might be a bad guy, clearly, but I still want to talk to him. I mean, isn't it possible he could still have credible information that could help? The investigation? I mean, he's been indicted for making false statements. And this is the person we're going to rely on uh, when all of these matters have already been considered by Donald Trump's own Department of Justice. Right. We're talking about William Barr. We're talking about Trump's U.S. attorney in the Western District of Pennsylvania. They already looked at all of this evidence uh, or alleged evidence, but they looked at these tips and they led nowhere. And now they're recycling the same old Giuliani allegations through the guise of this guy, 
who wants to wrap himself in the cloak of the House Oversight Committee. And we've got Senator Ron Johnson over on the other uh, side of Capitol Hill saying he should be given immunity. In other words, he should be given a clean slate for all of his arms trafficking uh, crimes and his false statement crimes and failing to register uh, as an agent for the Chinese government uh, so he can talk to the Oversight Committee about tips that have already been thoroughly discredited and repudiated by Donald Trump's own Department of Justice. So we're really in Alice in Wonderland territory now. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. A key witness in the House January 6th committee hearings, Cassidy Hutchinson, will release a memoir this fall. She was a top aide to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and was pivotal in the year-long investigation of the attack. Hutchinson provided damaging testimony against former President Trump, alleging that the Secret Service resisted his demands to join the insurrectionists at the Capitol and that members of Trump's inner circle offered jobs and money while she was cooperating with the committee. Enough, the title of the book, will be released September 26th. And moderate Democratic uh, Senator Joe Manchin is heading to New Hampshire, raising questions about a possible third-party run for the presidency. Here's what he's saying now about that up next. No, no, this is nothing about a third party. This is not about running about any office at all. It's about a dialogue for common sense, which is very hard to have here, finding a kind of commonality. And we're going around the country basically talking to people that want this commonality and common sense approach to how we fix problems. It's not happening here. Yeah, nobody goes to New Hampshire. Um, <laughs> to talk about politics, that was moderate Democratic Senator Joe Manchin appearing to dispel rumors to Armand Raja that he plans to run for president on a third party ticket. So why is there speculation in the first place? Well, it's because he plans to travel to New Hampshire for a town hall event with the group called No Labels. It's a centrist political organization that is actively considering running a third party candidate in 2024. Joining us now to explain to us everything we need to know about all the things related to politics. Our chief national affairs correspondent, Jeff Zelny. Jeff, I was fascinated when uh, I was out of Washington and talking to family and friends who aren't tied into Washington. They're asking about third party candidates. They're asking to some degree about no labels, which is stunning to me. I'm also a little bit dismissive of it. Third party candidates, What's a real threat out of the third party candidates that are out there or potentially out there? Well, it certainly causes alarm, uh, particularly in the Biden world. And this is why this uh, no labels organization has been around for a little while, uh, several years, actually. And it, uh, what they're talking about is a unity ticket, putting up a Republican and a Democrat or a Democrat and Republican in whichever order uh, to be an alternative if Biden and Trump are the nominees of their respective parties next year. Uh, the challenge with this is Democrats are concerned about this because they believe it siphons more votes from the Democratic side than from the Republican side because Trump voters are loyal. They believe some Biden voters aren't as enthusiastic. It's hard to know. You can argue this several different ways. We look back to history. Ross Perot, for example, in 1992, did he help Bill Clinton and hurt uh, President George H.W. Bush? Perhaps. Uh, you can also look back to 2016. Jill Stein was the Green Party candidate. So there is worry. And Senator Manchin there has not said, A, if he's running for re-election in West Virginia. So he's going to New Hampshire Monday night with this no labels group, causing some, uh, raising some eyebrows uh, in terms of what exactly he's up to. But is, he the, is that the biggest threat? It's not the only threat. Biden, and I'm talking specifically about Biden. It's not the only threat. And we mentioned Jill Stein. Uh, the Green Party is on the ballot in most every state. Right. And Cornell West is going to be trying to be the candidate for the Green Party. And many Democrats, including our colleague David Axelrod, 
uh, the former architect of the Obama campaign, is really causing, uh, he says that this should raise the alarm among Democrats, particularly in the blue wall, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Would he siphon votes away from Biden? So we're a long ways away from the general election, but plenty of time for Democratic uh, bedwetting and hand-wringing. All right, let's look on the other side of the aisle and who is qualifying for the debate. You have Tim Scott announcing as well as Chris Christie saying that they have reached that donor threshold. Of course, Chris Christie has been one of Trump's biggest antagonists. And I'm wondering, does that put pressure at all for Trump to, to show up as we start to see who is qualified? It is really interesting. Chris Christie, uh, he thought he was going to hit the threshold. Uh, yesterday he did. All week long he's been uh, calling the former president a coward. Yesterday, he said, Donnie, come on in. Are you not going to debate? So we'll see if you can goad him into this. Uh, we don't know what Donald Trump is going to do. My guess is there'll be uh, plenty of reading of the tea leaves on both sides from now until probably the week of August 23rd when that debate happens in Milwaukee. But look, I think this is something he might be wise to skip because he is uh, you know, buying away the front runner in this party. But uh, he does not always uh, play to conventional uh, strategy. Can the former president sort of, uh, you know, turn away the oxygen and the attention from that debate. So we'll see. But huge for Chris Christie to get on that stage. Mike Pence still hasn't qualified yet. So that will be a big question. Can he get 40,000 donors in 20 different states? It's harder than it sounds. Mm. Gift cards. That's gift cards. Gift cards. You have the money to do it. That's, that's fascinating to watch him try and meet the thresholds. Jeff Salony, good to see you, buddy. Thank you. you. Thank good to you. See you and this just in, a key inflation report has just been released. We're going to break down those numbers up next. And major Hollywood studios and streamers have failed to reach a deal with the union representing actors. I just hope that studios and streaming services are able to be as open and collaborative with the actors union um, so that people can go back to work immediately. And this just in, a key inflation report and this week's jobless claims have just been released. CNN's Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, there was good news on inflation yesterday. And this was better than expected on both fronts, right? Better than expected. So two economic reports coming out in just the last 12 minutes or so, both uh, proving better than economists were expecting. It's becoming a bit of a trend here, right? So let's start with the producer price index. This is the inflation index for the producers of goods and services, right? Not to be confused with CPI or the consumer price index. So this index increased 0.1% on an annual basis. That is better than economists were expecting on a monthly basis, also increasing 0.1%. That is better than economists were expecting. It's the lowest level, guys, in three years for PPI. Here's why this report really matters, because what we see in this data tends to give us a sense of what we can expect to see with consumer inflation, with consumer prices, the things that you and I and all of us spend. And so the sense is that if it's falling here, it should continue to fall in consumer inflation, which, of course, when that report yesterday uh, we saw, right? Let's go talk about jobless claims. So this is the, the most real-time indicator of what's happening in the labor market. This comes out once a week, and it gives us a sense of how many Americans are filing for unemployment benefits. We were expecting this number to actually tick up slightly, but it ticked down to 237,000. That ticked down 12,000, uh, I want to say, from the week prior. Continuing claims, that is the number of people who continue to file for unemployment benefits. That ticked up slightly, but was pretty much in line with what expectations were. Guys, this is a sense of, in a labor market that we had been expecting would start to soften, we're not really seeing that, perhaps marginally, but we're not really seeing that. This is a labor market that continues to defy expectations and continues to be strong, at least right now. All right, Rahel Solomon, thanks for breaking it down for us. Appreciate it. Yep.
Well, Hollywood is on the verge of yet another work stoppage after the latest round of talks between the SAG-AFTRA union and Hollywood Studios collapsed overnight. The Actors Union is preparing for its national board to authorize a strike. CNN's Natasha Chen is live for us in Los Angeles. Natasha, is this strike a done deal at this point? We're very much expecting this strike to happen, Phil. That's because the membership of 160,000 actors in this guild had already overwhelmingly authorized a strike if a deal was not reached. And this is already an extension of their first deadline. Uh, So we'll wait for that result at noon in Los Angeles, 3 p.m. Eastern. I want to read you a little bit about what the chief negotiators said about the negotiations. They said the studios and streamers have implemented massive unilateral changes in our industry's business model, while at the same time insisting on keeping our contracts frozen in amber. The studios and streamers have underestimated our members' resolve as they are about to fully discover. Here's one actor who's on the picket line this week talking about that resolve. I think, like, people assume that, you know, writers in Hollywood or actors in Hollywood are all sort of wealthy and successful and, you know, why should we need even more money than we're getting now? But what I don't think people realize is that there's a whole middle class of writers and actors that is disappearing because they're making it more and more difficult to just make a living. Difficult because they are asking for more wages and also they see on the horizon how artificial intelligence could threaten their work. Uh, The studios said that they actually offered a groundbreaking deal with uh, protections regarding AI. And here's part of what they said. We are deeply disappointed that SAG-AFTRA has decided to walk away from negotiations. This is the union's choice, not ours. Rather than continuing to negotiate, SAG-AFTRA has put us on a course that will deepen the financial hardship for thousands who depend on the industry for their livelihoods, Phil. All right, Natasha Chen, thank you. So if you're planning on traveling soon, do yourself a favor. Make sure your passport is up to date and where you left it last. Terry Anton has this morning's number up next. He brought a prop. He has a prop prop. in his hand. Of course he brought a prop. Of course. He's not dancing. Well, if you're planning to travel overseas at some point in the near future, Go ahead and make sure you have your passport up to date or else you may be out of luck. The State Department reports wait times of up to three months for routine passport processing because of high demand. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton has a private back channel passport. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Uh, But he does have the morning number. Harry, what is it? All right. This morning's number is... 22 plus million. Why? That's the number of U.S. passports issued in 2023 expected, beating the old record, which was just last year in 2022, of a little bit less than 22 million. So I don't have a back channel, but the fact is a lot of people want to go overseas at this point. A lot of people want to go overseas. Are there enough people processing all these requests? Tell us about the problems here. Yeah. You know, you were talking about the fact that processing times are way up. Look at this. The normal is three to five weeks, or six to nine weeks for routine. Look what it's up to now, 10 to 13 weeks. Let's say you want an expedited expedited passport. The normal there is three to five weeks. Look here, it's still up to seven to nine weeks. Do not be like our friend Ellie Honig, who arrived at the airport and realized, wait a minute, my passport's out of date. This is a true story. (laughs) This actually happened. His family went without him, which I totally respect his family for doing that. Uh, What does this passport rush say about kind of the COVID pandemic and the aftermath. Yeah, so, you know, Americans who say the COVID-19 pandemic is over, look at this, 64%, the majority now say it's over. Americans believe it's over. It's the first time 
during this entire pandemic period in which the majority say the COVID-19 pandemic is over. Guys? And again, right. if you want uh, Harry's back channel, his black market passport, it's 212. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Good to Thanks. see you. Great to see you, Harry. Thanks. Well, this just in, the FDA approving the first over-the-counter birth daily control pill. Uh, Perigo's once-a-day O-pill will be sold without a prescription, and there will be no age restrictions on sales. This move comes six decades after birth control pills were introduced into the U.S., and it allows women and girls to buy contraceptive medication from the same aisles as aspirin and eye drops. Well, it's been six months since the Buffalo Bills training staff saved DeMar Hamlin's life after he went into cardiac arrest on the football field. Those trainers they were honored at last night's ESPY Awards. DeMar, first and foremost, thank you for staying alive, brother. <laughs> Well, if it wasn't for the quick response from the Buffalo Bills training staff, DeMar Hamlin probably wouldn't be alive. It's something he has said time and time again ever since those trainers ran onto the field to save him. Hamlin was in cardiac arrest after being hit in the chest while making a routine tackle during the Bills game in Cincinnati in January. Wednesday, Hamlin had the opportunity to honor his heroes, presenting the team of trainers who saved his life with the Pat Tillman Award for service at the ESPY Awards. The moment brought the 25-year-old to tears his emotional tribute was met with a standing ovation. This team next to me, who is celebrated tonight, we're not used to having the spotlight on us. Like we, we were just doing our job. But the idea of service is definitely something that is ingrained in our profession and that we take great pride in. If there is one thing we hope you take away from this tonight, learn CPR, and how to use an AED, because they save lives. Wow, that was beautiful. It was an important message, first and foremost, but also the way DeMar Hamlin, throughout the course of his recovery and constantly putting the focus on that team of people that saved his lives, uh, his life, and just the way he's touched individuals by how he's addressed this situation yeah. throughout. Um, it's, I don't know, it's incredible. And his speech last night was, uh, his remarks last night were outstanding. He just seems like a really great guy. I mean, it was so authentic, right? His yes, emotion, everything about it, it was just, Real. it was beautiful. And those heroes, they deserve to be recognized the way that they were saving his life. Um, it's one of those feel-good stories. It's been a, a whirlwind of a year for him. I know, right? Um, and he's coming back. He's, he's coming back. back. He's training. He's going to play again. Coming back, back strong. Story. All right, we'll see you in a new Central starts right now. Have a great day, everyone. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.